Mr. Ferlinghetti. Thanks very much. You can't call a poet Mr. I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth and Mission. We're remembering Lawrence Ferlinghetti. He was a poet, a publisher, and a bookseller, and he was both a literary giant and a San Francisco institution. He died Tuesday at the age of 101. You just heard him on the Chronicle's Datebook podcast in 2018, talking to the Chronicle's book editor at the time, John McMurtry. We'll hear more from that episode later. Ferlinghetti came to San Francisco in 1951 and asked a stranger to point him to the bohemian part of town. He was raised outside New York City and for a time in an orphanage in France. He'd served in the Navy in World War II. He was part of the D-Day invasion, and he earned a bachelor's degree in journalism at the University of North Carolina, then a master's in literature at Columbia and a doctorate at the Sorbonne in Paris. In 1953, he put up $500 to become partners with Peter Martin and open City Lights Books in North Beach. It was the first bookstore devoted exclusively to paperback books. But beyond that, as he said on the Date Book podcast, it was something San Francisco needed if it wanted to be a great city, a home for its literary scene. All the bookstores closed at 5 p.m. and they weren't open on the weekends. And there was no place to sit down. And there's usually a clerk on top of you on top of you asking you what you wanted hmm. and so that's what, the first thing i realized there was no bookstore to become the locus for the literary community it's really important for if you're going to have a literary community it has to have a locus it just can't be out there in the air so from the very beginning when we started city lights June 1953, the idea was to make it a locus for the the uh, the new literary community that had developed out of the Berkeley Renaissance, so-called, and uh, and it proved to be true. People just flocked to it because there had been no locus for the literary life. Ferlinghetti first became world famous in 1957 when he published Howell and Other Poems by Allen Ginsberg and was hit with obscenity charges for that and for selling it at City Lights. He was acquitted in a landmark case. The next year, he published his book of poems, A Coney Island of the Mind. Almost every obituary, not to mention this episode of Fifth and Mission, refers to Ferlinghetti as a poet, a publisher, and a bookseller. I asked Jerry Cimino, the founder and director of the Beat Museum in San Francisco, which one of those roles was the most important for him. Well, they're all three pretty equally important. I think the reason that you're seeing poet, publisher, and bookseller is he was not a member of the beat generation. He wasn't a beat Nick. Lawrence was always very vociferous about that point. He he never, he said, I was the publisher of the beats, but I wasn't a beat myself. And how do you make that distinction? Well, the beats were, in, in Lawrence's, the way he would describe it, you know, they were ne'er-do-wells. They didn't have jobs. <laughs> he was a working man. He you know, he, he really was a businessman. And he, he considered himself more of a bohemian than he did a beat or a beatnik. He was older. You know, he was born in 1919, as I'm sure you know. And and so he was, uh, you know, a few years older than most of the beats who were born in the mid-1920s. And so for that reason, he always liked to draw a distinction between himself and the beat poets. He, You know, City Lights and, and the publishing company and Lawrence were all 
in many ways, much larger than the Beat Generation. And of course, he was a starving artist in the early 1950s, but he started this now famous bookstore, City Lights. How did that come to be? Well, the story that's told is he was, uh, you know, he came to San Francisco after World War II, and he was uh, hanging around this scene here, and he, he was he wanted to be a painter, and he was walking up Columbus one day, and he bumped into a guy who actually started City Lights. City Lights was not actually started by Lawrence. It was a magazine. Oh. Yeah, this is something most people don't know. City Lights was a magazine started by a guy um, named Jim Martin, and he... Uh, I'm going to interrupt here. His name was Peter Martin, not Jim. Simino realized after we'd talked that he'd said the wrong name, and he asked us to make a note of it. Okay, back to the founding of City Lights. He uh, was uh, hanging a shingle outside of his place one day, saying City Lights books. And, and he said, oh, you're selling books. And he says, yeah, I just decided the magazine's not going to keep this place afloat, so I need to branch out a little bit. And Lawrence said, I always wanted to be a bookseller myself. And he said, you got 500 bucks, you can be my partner. <laughs> and that's how it started. Wow. And then a few years later, Martin moved out, moved on, and Lawrence bought him out. And how would you describe the significance of City Lights to San Francisco and to the publishing world in general? Oh, my gosh. In my opinion, City Lights is the single most important bookstore in the world. Uh, wow. It's, uh, it's a bookstore and a, a publishing house. And it's, you know, it's, it, it made it okay to be different. It made it okay to write different kinds of things. So, uh, Ferlin Getty sought out people that fit into that mold. He nurtured them. And, um, you know, much of, of, of what's happened in our country and around the world really can be laid at Lawrence's feet because, you know, the, the whole counterculture of the 1950s, of the Beat Generation especially, grew out of City Lights. Um, you know, the, the Beat Generation was the first counterculture to really go around the world and had it not been for Lawrence publishing Howell by Allen Ginsberg, we wouldn't be talking about it. I mean, there's so many happy coincidences that had to have fallen into place. And one of them is Lawrence was at the first reading of Howell here in San Francisco at the Sixth Gallery. And I'm sure you've heard he's he sent the famous uh, telegram to... Alan, the next day, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. When do I get the manuscript? And there were echoes of, of uh, Emerson in that. And so Lawrence recognized that, uh, I mean, uh, Alan Ginsberg recognized that Lawrence knew about the transcendentalists and kind of saw him as a kindred spirit and decided to go with the publication of Howe at, at City Lights. And, you know, it, it made all the difference because then all of a sudden, the 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 beats made it okay to be different to walk to a different drummer and um the counterculture of the 50s was born and out of that the counterculture of the 60s was born there never would have been a hippie era had there not been the beat generation you never would have seen a 1967 had we not had the 1957 of of how and the beat generation i never thought of that and of course, he was charged with obscenity um, after publishing and Correct. selling Howell. Yeah. And can you walk us through his decision to do that and how he handled the the court fight? Yeah, sure. Lawrence, frankly, he set the whole thing up, and that's something most people don't know. It was a brilliant move. He knew he was treading dangerously because of the language in the book and the homosexual themes that are sometimes quite graphic. And so mm -hmm. 
In Lawrence's mind, he knew what the rules were. He knew that he would likely get into trouble for publishing a book like this. And the smartest thing that he did is he sent a pre-release copy to the American Civil Liberties Union. And he said, I'm pushing the envelope out here in San Francisco, and I'm probably going to get arrested, and that would put me and my little bookstore out of business overnight. What do you think of this? And the ACLU took a look at this poem, and they said, this is a free speech issue. We should be able to say this in 1956 in the United States of America. You go ahead, you take the risk, you publish that book, and if anything happens, if you get arrested, we will we'll be there for you. And that's exactly how it played out. And in court, it's famous, especially in the world of the beats. You know, they had academics line up and they were talking about the pros and cons of the poem. And in the end, the judge ruled this has redeeming social value. That means it's a work of art. It's not obscene. And that opened up the floodgates as to what was permissible in the United States. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me today. Okay, thanks for touching base. Jerry Semino is the founder and director of the Beat Museum in San Francisco, which is temporarily closed because of the pandemic. But you can visit Kerouac.com. After a break, we'll hear from San Francisco architect Nilas Damachan, whose cafe Ferlinghetti used to frequent. We'll also hear from former Chronicle writer Ruth Stein about the time she was Ferlinghetti's editor. And we'll hear more from that 2018 Datebook podcast. We'll be right back. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. What drew you to poetry as a young man? Oh, some dame. Some dame. <laughs> that was poet, publisher, and City Lights owner Lawrence Ferlinghetti on the Chronicle's Datebook podcast in 2018. Ferlinghetti died Tuesday at the age of 101. Nilas Dematran is a San Francisco architect who used to own a cafe at Union and Front Streets, where Lawrence Ferlinghetti would meet friends for coffee on Saturdays. They had a regular table in the corner, and Dematran says they felt comfortable enough that they recorded a radio show there. I asked him what Ferlinghetti was like as a person. Oh, he was great. Uh, a, a gentleman. A gentleman, basically. For us, it was just treating us like we're all in the living room together. So it wasn't, there was no, uh, uh, the only thing we always were kind of keeping our fingers crossed when he left was even back then, which was nearly 20 years ago, we were worried because he was riding his bike (laughs) back to his painting studio. Oh, wow. And we always kind of kept our fingers crossed going, okay, hopefully we'll make it there in time, make it there in one piece. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so but, even in his 80s, he was riding his bicycle he was, the yeah. city? Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. And was it obvious when he was around that you that you were in the company of a, a world-famous poet and publisher, or did he just seem like kind of a regular guy? Uh, tell you the truth, to us it was like a regular guy. He was... He was who he was, but he didn't play that, you know, I don't know how to put it, but no, he he was just Lawrence, basically. And we asked him, he did a postcard for us. We used to do kind of postcards for the customers to have, Cafe de Steel postcards. And we used ask uh, customers to do some artwork for it. And asked him and he did 
one and kind of looks like a self-portrait, but not quite sure. And yeah, and he used to have two friends, Jim and Eric, that were always with him. And Jim was a sound engineer. Mm -hmm. And Eric was involved in the radio somehow. They were always recording things. So, uh, but you know, it was socializing with everybody else. We're just lucky that period it was, the cafe was very popular because of the farmer's market. So we had, Lawrence was there and Robert Bechtel was there and Whitney Chadwick and Philip Kaufman, uh, Alice Waters and uh, or list yeah. was, uh, it was great. They all talked to each other. It wasn't everybody in their own group. So That sounds like fun. So do you feel that San Francisco lost a little piece of itself today? Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, it was like, you know, when the thing came on the iPhone as a notification, it, I had to go and find the postcard he made for us oh. and take it out and say goodbye, kind of. Uh, it was definitely part of San Francisco. Well, thank you for sharing your memories. I appreciate it. Oh, sure. That's Nilas Damatran, architect and former cafe owner, talking about his former customer, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. In 2001, Ruth Stein was editing the Chronicle's datebook section, the Sunday Pink section. After 9-11, Datebook asked readers to send in poetry about how they were feeling in the wake of the attack. Stein was hoping an established poet would write a poem that would serve as a centerpiece. She called Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And he was very gracious on the phone. He said he'd be happy to write a poem for us. And he, and he sent me a poem, uh, which I, was, I wish I could remember. It was quite lovely. And, and then we talked and he said, well, you can use this poem, but I want you to know if you change as much as a comma on it, I won't let you publish it. Um, so I said, well, Mr. Frankietti, I can assure you I am an editor, but I'm not in the habit of editing known and published poets and putting my take on, on their poetry in the poem. And so I can assure you that the poem will run exactly the way you sent it to me. And, and so he, he seemed very pleased by that. And when I hung up, I thought, well, you know, here's a guy who's been around forever, and he must have been in his 80s. By then, I think. And I thought, you know, that's really wonderful that he still cares so much, you know, that he would be upset if, if a comma were missing on his poem. And I knew that he was going to look at it the minute it came out and everything. And I didn't change, it, didn't change anything. Not only that, but I looked over, the, over the, the, the shoulder of the copy editor to make sure nobody else put a finger on it. <laughs> and so it, ran, it was just the way we ran it. And, I, and he sent me a note afterwards. He was very pleased. And the whole thing just really worked out well. It was a lovely section, and, and people got comments on it weeks afterwards and people really appreciated Mr. Ferlinghetti's input in all of it and I think it made all of us maybe do a little bit better. So I always had a nice I always had a nice nice feeling about him because of our one experience there. The poem that Ferlinghetti wrote was called The Airplane. It's now known in slightly edited form as History of the Airplane. Here's an excerpt from it read by producer King Kaufman. And the Wright brothers were long forgotten in the high-flying bombers that now began to visit their blessings on various third worlds. 
all the while claiming they were searching for doves of peace. And they kept flying and flying until they flew right into the 21st century. And then one fine day, a third world struck back and stormed the Great Plains and flew them straight into the beating heart of skyscraper America, where there were no aviaries and no parliaments of doves. And in a blinding flash, America became a part of the scorched earth of the world. And a wind of ashes blew across the land. And for one long moment in eternity, there was chaos and despair and buried loves and voices. Cries and whispers filled the air everywhere. That's The Airplane by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, which appeared in the Chronicle on October 14, 2001. Ferlinghetti died Tuesday at the age of 101. For more coverage of his life and death, go to sfchronicle.com. Thanks to Jerry Semino, Ruth Stein, and Nilas Dematran for talking to me, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. Let's end with Ferlinghetti reciting one of his poems from memory on that 2018 Datebook podcast. The poem is In Goya's Greatest Scenes We Seem to See, from his classic book, A Coney Island of the Mind. In Goya's Greatest Scenes We Seem to See The People of the World Exactly at the moment when they first attain the title of Suffering Humanity, they writhe upon the page in a veritable rage of adversity, heaped up, groaning with babies and bayonets under cement skies in an abstract landscape of blasted trees, slippery gibbets, and all the other hollering monsters of the imagination of disaster. They are so bloody real, it is as if they really still existed. And they do. Only the landscape is changed. They still arranged along the roads, plagued. We still arranged along the roads, plagued by legionnaires, false windmills, and demented roosters. We are the same people, only further from home. On freeways, 50 lanes wide, on a concrete continent spaced with bland billboards illustrating imbecile illusions of happiness. The scene shows fewer tumbrils, but more spaced out citizens in painted cars, and they have strange license plates and engines that devour America.